if you ate an animal protein, even a plant, anything you ate, you're now accountable to leverage that to bigger things, to treating others nice, to loving others, to be an example for, and that's hard to do. I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. One of my favorite books of all time is this memoir called Smoke Gets in Your Eyes by Caitlin Dowdy. It's about a girl who takes her first job out of college as a mortician at a crematorium. Her first day, she gets handed this corpse of like a 90-year-old man and has to shave his face with a pink razor. She has a great sense of humor for someone dealing with death all day. And her big message in the book is how we in Western culture tend to cover up death. We tuck it away, put it under white sheets, and tend to be hush-hush about it. But all of life comes with death. And so she urges us to build a more accepting relationship with death. Active podcast, which I totally recommend you check out. If you eat meat, this episode is for you. And if you don't, this episode is especially for you. I think Neil brings a really crucial point of view that most of us don't get to see. As someone who grew up taking care of animals and who now helps a large company make decisions around animal welfare. By the end of the episode, you may just want to support a company doing great work. And so Neil has graciously offered us 10% off any order with the code farm to future I tried their Whole30 sampler box, and I highly recommend their sugar-free bacon, their breakfast sausage, and kielbasa. Check out petersonsfarms.com, and that's petersons with a D. And now, on to the show. Awesome. We are live here with Neil Dudley, the cowboy. We have a ton of ground to cover today. But first off, did you have bacon this morning? I did not. Actually, (laughs) I follow an intermittent fasting diet, so I don't eat breakfast. Okay. Uh, I did cook bacon for my family. We have it almost every day with sliced apples or some kind of fruit, or one time we might put some oatmeal with it. Uh, the girls are in the middle of some testing, so we're really trying to fuel their brains with quality food right now, so they, they go perform their best. But I didn't have it. I won't eat anything till about noon today. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, a, a lot of my friends are into the intermittent fasting, and it seems to work really well. I mean, the research is probably on all sides of it. My experience, personally, is I love it. It works great for my body. I feel no fog in the brain. I feel, you know, I'll have black coffee. That's what I have in the morning. And by the time noon comes around, I'm still not really hungry, but I go ahead and eat because that's part of the routine. I think that's the challenge for me is like eat when you're hungry, not when the routine dictates it. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. For me, it's like clockwork, you know, 12 o'clock. All right. Time to (laughs) whip something out. Um, But so food has been a big part of your life since growing up, right? So you're a fifth generation farmer, which is incredible. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, have you always lived on a a farm or ranch? And, And what does it mean to you to be a cowboy? Well, the word cowboy just resonates with me in a big way because it's it basically synonymous with hero for me. Cowboys are my hero. They are kind of stand up, genuine, authentic, salt of the earth people. That's how the word cowboy feels to me. And, and it just comes from my 
dad and his brothers and the people in the community I grew up in. I've always been a part of farming, ranching, agriculture, living off the land. Uh, Even when I went to college, I ended up moving in with a guy that lived in Lubbock and his family were cotton farmers. So I was still always finding my way to be a part of the the agriculture industry. And, And I want it to be shared in a way that people understand. I think a lot of times the ag industry is misunderstood because it's hard to have that experience and derive your opinions about animal protein, farming, all those things if you didn't get the chance to live it. It'd be kind of like me trying to <laughs> trying to relate with what it might be like to be a skateboarder. I never <laughs> did that. I don't know the culture. I don't know what it's like. So I can't speak from an educated opinion. Now I've I have skateboarder friends. I have assumptions based on what they've told me and how they are to be around. And that's just an example. It could come in a million other ways. I just want to be a kind of a conduit of this agricultural truth that I've lived and I feel so passionate about to get to those who might be curious about it, who might be willing to think, okay, do I really understand it? Do I really have a well-developed opinion? And I think mine should change over time too. I've got to learn things along the way. I, I don't know everything there is to know about it, nor does the company I work for, Peterson's. We don't know everything there is to know about raising pigs or making bacon or sausage or ham, any of those things. We're just doing the best we know how to today. And hopefully we'll know better just a little bit tomorrow. And that little bit, 1% better every day is a huge change over time. Yeah, especially because you've been with the company for, what, 20 years now? Yes, ma'am. Wow. I mean, so if anyone knows anything about raising pigs humanely, it's probably you and your team. Well, we have seen a lot of evolution over the years with the marketplace, with consumers' interest, with uh, technology coming along that makes feeding and tracking and, and keeping up with the health of your animals more efficient better. I think sometimes the word efficient gets misunderstood as just trying to raise every piece of pork on every square inch of every building. Really more efficient for us means healthy, happy, eating well, living well. All of those pieces really are the efficiency piece that we like to certainly consider technologies that help us make sure that's done. I mean, humans are a risk, (laughs) you know, from disease that we might impart on the animals to having a bad day and hitting one, you know, I mean, humans hit humans. We we do stuff that is not smart. So every time you interject a human into the equation, there's that chance of just a mistake being. So I think humans are a huge, important, very integral piece to making it the best it can be. We just Mm -hmm. have to kind of think, okay, cool. Are we considering all options and leverage them the best way we can. We're the problem and the solution. Well, <laughs> That's you know, what our I mean, thumbs it, are for, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you've got to kind of challenge me if that sounds off, because I don't want it to sound off. It's kind of almost hypocritical to say we're the problem and the solution. But I think life is that way in a lot of ways. You're just cruising along, doing great, and then you hit a hiccup. It could be anything. And You know, an animal can have that same experience. When an animal's having a bad day and you're having a bad day, that makes for a bad relationship because the animal 
maybe you need that animal to come into a certain pen because you need to doctor them because they've been sick and you want to care for them, but they're scared or unfamiliar, whatever, you know, and then it just kind of is a bad situation. And I try to paint that because I think a lot of our counterparts in the industry, and I appreciate them, who think animal agriculture is a really terrible idea, will go find those situations and really mm. amplify them as great as they can. And they're just rare. I mean, I've lived it. I know I've been there. I've, I've made bad decisions with animal husbandry and relationships, even in human relationships. I've made those bad decisions. So to think that we will all never make a bad decision, I think is a bad stance to take because it will happen. Are we going to stand up, take responsibility and accountability for those mistakes and make conscious decisions to move them to a better place to avoid them in the future. To me, those are the exciting opportunities we have. I, I, I mean, even the, my hair on my arm stands up because it, it makes me think I'm accountable to that, right? I need to have those same inspectful eyes on me and the things that I do because it is important. You know, clearly the way you talk about your animals is you care for them as living creatures. And I, so we just got a puppy a few months ago and obviously different from taking care of hundreds or thousands of animals, but you know, his mood changes day to day too. And, you know, a couple weeks ago I left him in the crate alone for the first time for like 30 minutes and I came back and he was mad at me, you know? And if you just filmed that little clip, that would look bad but 99 percent of the time he's totally taken care of and you know we feed him well we walk him you know he has a great life but it totally is a back and forth and it's a relationship and i think we forget that sometimes as consumers where we just think of these animals as you know parts of a production chain and you have your inputs and outputs and then they produce meat that we get to enjoy at the end right but you know, you are taking care of living creatures. And I think you really highlighted that well. Well, of course, the difference between me raising a puppy and you raising the pigs is at the end of the day, they go somewhere different. Right? It's a great analogy, though, right? I mean, your experience with animals is most likely a puppy or a kitty or a gerbil or a snake, you know, as a pet, as a companion. I've had that experience with Cows, pigs, sheep, horses. I had to live through and experience and understand that cow, that steer, I ultimately had for hamburger. And, and it comes into me as a appreciation and a respect more than a, a thing that hurts or is painful. I think of it like, okay, we're all going to live and die. This cow is going to live and die. When I die... I've donated my organs because I want other people to have a chance to flourish even after I'm gone. So I think about the similar way with the mm. cattle, like that they're going to die. Somebody's going to eat them. I'm afraid somebody else that eats them may not understand and respect that life they live as much as me. So I kind of want to eat their food and have it be nutritious for me so I can still go live and take care of their family. You know, they've got descendants and there's generations anyways i mean this is kind of a spiral mm. into a long art uh just exploration of my feelings about meat but that's how i feel about it 
Yeah, no, I, I'd love to dig into that a little bit deeper because, you know, you mentioned there's been a ton of change in public opinion in the last, say, 20, 30 years around meat itself. There's kind of a branding problem or branding crisis around meat. And you see this plant-based movement that's really growing. You see a lot of vegans and vegetarians who are, you know, trying out new diets for different reasons, you know, part of it ethics and part of um, it is the environmental piece, and we can dig into those. But one thing you just mentioned is the cycle of life and death. There are some people who are detached from agriculture and having to raise animals or grow their own food, not seeing that side of death and just thinking that all killing of animals is harmful. But I think what you're presenting is a much more nuanced position on, you know, this cycle is going to happen regardless. And for the time that these animals are alive, we might as well take good care of them. I, I think death is sad without kind of sad period, but it's more sad if you don't have any residual thing that comes from it, you know, like me donating my organs or the animal providing its meat for nutrition within humans. So then those humans should be held accountable. You know, I think if you ate an animal protein, even a plant, anything you ate, you're now accountable to leverage that to bigger things, to treating others nice, to loving others, to be an example for, and that's hard to do. It's not easy to just forgive, offer grace, love. Uh, it's a challenge. I think that's a really good one. It's a really noble thing to try to live for. Do you have any vegetarians or vegans in your life? And if so, how, how do you kind of strike that conversation or that agreement with them? Right. I do. Probably, uh, maybe more than I even know, because it's not that big of a conversation, really. I mean, I don't try to change who they want to be and who they believe they should be. Right. And they don't really try to do that with me either. We've had vegetarians that work within our company and still appreciate our culture and our expectations and our ethics. I mean, this is a fun story and it's just a true story. One of the gals that worked for us was vegetarian. We bring everybody in for this big bacon party we throw to raise money for type one diabetes. Uh, happens the third Saturday in October every year. So if you wanna come uh, have a that lot of fun, fun and help us raise money. We give the teams 15 pounds of bacon. They make anything they want. That's the only rule use this bacon. Oh. Uh, anyways, she came, you know, we'd like to fly our team in. Everybody's involved, volunteering, helping that event be as big as it can be. Well, as a result, she ate way more meat than she ever has. And <laughs> it, it did not sit well with her. I mean, it made her sick, right? So mm. that's just a true real story that, okay, so we've lived that. There's no rule. You have to eat meat to work at Peterson's. There's only a rule that you have to be humble, hungry, and smart. Those are our requirements to be a part of this company. And I actually want and try to recruit that perspective onto the team because how are we going to do the best we can do? Look, we all have got vegetarian friends or somebody who thinks about things differently than we do. If we're unable to or unwilling to hear a little bit about that, we're not going to be a good solution for those people who do end up buying our products. I mean, we've put out vegetarian products. We, we launched a chicken fajita and beef fajita plant-based product five years ago. 
we were two years too early. So it uh-huh. didn't survive. It didn't do well. We probably didn't market it well. It was kind of out of our wheelhouse, but we knew there was an important piece of that puzzle coming. Everybody throwing a party. You've got a vegetarian friend. You need a plant-based option. And what I want to learn more is why does somebody that wants to be plant-based even care to have a substitute like that, right? I don't know that answer. They know that answer. They can tell you maybe it's mouthfeel, bite, something. Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you just from my perspective, I used to be vegetarian for four years. And part of that time, I lived in France. And this was like 2012. And that was rough because nobody over there understood what vegetarian meant. They were like, oh, yeah, it's it's vegetables, but you're going to have some meat with it. (laughs) Um, And so I ended up eating a lot of salad and a lot of dessert (laughs) to feel full, which is not healthy, but, you know, it's what I needed in order to feel satiated. And I think that satiation piece is sometimes what's missing in plant-based diets. But it's really fascinating to hear kind of your philosophy uh, behind, you know, how you care for animals and all of this. But of course, you're also running a business. And so what are the conversations look like within the company for when you're deciding, okay, this is the standard that we're going to stick to for, say, this fiscal year? How do you strike that balance between the humanely raised part and the needing to meet demand and keep high quality product at a reasonable price? I love that question. I think people imagine that must be a really tough conversation, but it's really not. I mean, for us, we know that's our lane. We're not going to get out of our lane because there's already other people running in those other lanes that are doing a good job. We don't need to go get in a bunch of other lanes. Uh, Our lane is we don't compromise on the humane treatment of the animals. We don't compromise on ingredients. And if that limits our upside, of course, we've had people that come in on the team who are like, you're totally ignoring a part of the market. It's a big conversation, takes several hours, multiple different times in the boardroom, arguing over that. And we always kind of check it with, is it our lane? And we can't be the solution for everybody. That's not Peterson's job. Our job is to be the solution for the people that align with our culture, ethics, expectations. And if there's a limiter then on our top side revenue, okay. I think over time, our lane gets wider and and bigger and longer because I think humans are, are just getting more and more interested in educating themselves and knowing more about where their food comes from. Part of why we do the Peterson's Farm podcast, part of why I try to be a guest on other people's podcasts is that transparency, that education. I'm a leader within this organization. You should get to know me. You should be able to get to know me if you want to. So you have a good estimation of how our company is going to go. So if you're spending your hard-earned dollar or your time with the Peterson's brand, you go away feeling good about it. Yeah, I love that when I open up the Peterson's Instagram account, I immediately see your face. And I think that speaks volumes to, you know, who you are as a brand, as a company is like, you know, transparency and having access to leadership is so key. So one thing I'd love 
some visibility into, and maybe you can help paint us a picture of, of what the farm looks like. So uh, I think Peterson's uses the Global Animal Partnership Standards, right? And I believe y'all are at GAP1. Is that right. the yeah. kind of baseline standard? Okay. So I was looking at their website and what they list under kind of each. So they have steps one through five, and then five plus is the the animal spends their whole life on the farm. So I have a little bone to pick and maybe this is more with global animal partnership, but you know, the little logo they have and it's got the picture of the cow, the pig and the chicken and it's on. Yeah. They kind of layer grass. over each other. Right. Yeah. And they've got the grass at the bottom. And so when I see that label on, you know, say the pork chops I buy, we just had some gap one uh, pork chops last night. Uh, I think like, oh, you know, great. This is a pasture raised pig. You know, he was happy. Maybe he has a college degree, you know, <laughs> and um, but then looking at the standards like they they don't actually live outside until gap four is it and so there are strict standards under each rating but i guess i'm curious how you all landed at gap one and do you have a roadmap for moving up the chain great question i think you also needle on a truth in marketing and and how visual things make everybody feel in the words you see you hear the words grass-fed a lot. You hear the words regenerative a lot. Matter of fact, we're doing webinars every first Wednesday of the month kind of addressing labels and the confusion around claims on labels. So I'd really encourage your listeners to come check out our webinar. We've got panelists that come from other businesses, other research companies that just help us explore those questions you have. I think your question, your bone to pick is a great one. It's counterintuitive. It almost feels like you're being lied to a little bit. And that's not good. That's mm -hmm. not the point. I'm really, I really know the Global Animal Partnership team very well. So they have to go to the drawing board now and say, okay, right. Our label needs to convey a truth, but it's not a whole truth. And is there any way to actually convey a whole truth in a little small square logo, right? You, you want people mm -hmm. to say, okay, this deals with animals. And, and give them the feeling that there's another level of appreciation here without confusing them once they go do the deeper research. For us, our, our roadmap or our expectation or what we plan to do, the step one is a huge move forward from the way pigs have been raised for many years in commercial commodity, you know, big operations. We really want to make as many of those steps forward there because that's a really big jump. So how much of that production can we get moved to that? So now there are no outside access. They are raised in barns, but I would love, you know, just if you could go be in that barn, you'll understand they're happy. They're moving around. You don't hear them audibleize a lot. They're not starving. You know, they, there's bedding for them to lay in. Pigs are a really cool animal too. They kind of have a kitchen where they go eat. They have a bathroom where mm -hmm. they go to the bathroom and they have a bed where they go sleep and lay around. And they're, they're social animals too. There's a bully in every herd. There's kind of <laughs> picked on in every herd. So all those things are considered to kind of build the pens where they can go get away from the crowd if they want to. But I totally hear, oh man, that grass is in that picture. And now when I go study it, they, they actually never put their foot outside. 
that, that feels a little bit like BS. <laughs> and right. that's, that's why we have to have the conversation. That's uh, why I love to get people to come out to the ranch. They just get to experience what I know is a real good reality for the animals. I mean, their ears are perked up. They're eating. They feel good. They're moving around. They're socializing. It's so funny. Sows will also make have little friend groups like <laughs> Ethel, Julia, and Joyce all hang out together. They all kind of <laughs> go eat at the same time. They makes you just really appreciate that move from gestation crates and farrowing crates to step one of gap. It's, it's a big move in pork. Now, and mm. every protein's different. They all require totally different scenarios for the animals to thrive and do well. Pasture Bird's a, a company that's killing it right now with chicken production systems. So we're really just trying to get as much of the herd in America moved to step one, more so than we are trying to think about, okay, cool, we want all of our step five. And we, we do watch that. Mm. We do think, cool, how do we get to step two, step three, step five? The fact is, Consumers are not voting with their dollars that those steps make that much difference to them. So as a company, as a business, moving from commodity to step one pays us. We're able to, right. to get a margin captured because of that. Now, the cost of moving from one to two or three or four or five, we are not yet in today's market rewarded for those measures we take. So to me, the logical thing is, okay, cool, let's bring as much of this stuff into this step one that people value as we can. And then when the market tells us they value these other steps, then we start going after them. We really stay focused on the consumer, their expectations, what they're willing to pay for and let that drive us. Yeah, totally. I have two perspectives on that, which one is, the cynic in me and the designer in me is thinking, well, you know, the logo doesn't actually change when you go from one step one to step five. You just get added on a number at the bottom, which consumers, most of us don't even know what that means. And so having that baseline logo is, you know, what matters. But then I would love to come out to the ranch and do a visit because I think what you say is so enlightening around, well, maybe the pigs are totally happy in this environment and, you know, moving them outdoors won't make that huge of a difference if they already have their social circles. You know, you got Tommy the bully and little Arnold over there and they've got their social dynamics in there. Maybe those are the things that matter most. Well, pig production is also really dynamic because mainly what I talk about is farrowing. So mama pigs giving birth to baby pigs and then raising those baby pigs until they're ready to be weaned and go to the next stage of their life. But so once they move off of mama, then they go to a, a really way different environment. They are now in barns with big bales of hay that they jump on and play in. Then they'll go to another barn. That, you know, the first barn's called the nursery. The next one's called the finisher. Those are just really different experiences than mm. arrowing farm, which is where the babies are born. And most scrutiny really gets placed on those farrowing farms because of the gestation crates and the farrowing crates. So probably incorrectly, I lean to talking about that the most because I feel like it's where most of the confusion lies or most of the mm. misinterpretation is. 
you show pigs in finishing and nurseries, everybody's going to mostly think, wow, that's really fun. They're happy. That's cool. It's all good. You start showing that farrowing farm where those mamas are in these gestation pens, which is them raising babies in their belly. That's what they're doing during that time. Not much else. It can look pretty like, wow, that, that looks not good, not fun. I'm sad for them. So I spend quite mm -hmm. a bit of time just trying to paint the picture. I'm not trying to change your feeling about it because it's your feeling. It's up to you to change that. I, I can only provide an honest perspective that I feel is, is just from my experience, my real life knowledge. So the, the mama pig who's in the, I, I'm guessing it's like a smaller pen in a smaller space. Is that kind of what she needs at that stage? Because I'm guessing she's not moving around very much. Oh, no. Well, see, that's why I was saying pens. Now, so let's okay. picture in big commodity systems. They put them in basically a dog crate. And that's where they stay that whole time they're gestating. So it's kind of lay down, stand up, eat. That's all they can do. They can't turn around. It's just mm -hmm. a very small space. Our system, GAP-1 protocol, requires big open pens. Where they're, they're moving around. It's like just picture a football field with maybe 50 pigs on it. So they've got a lot of space to go turn around, socialize, and do their thing. And those measurements are, you know, somebody could go fact check me on this. Well, baseball field at 50 pigs doesn't actually, that's way more space than what GAP requires. I'm just trying to paint that picture as it's a big space. They're just turning around, laying down, moving, walking around. They'll even exercise a little bit. You can watch them like they're purposely walking from one place to the other, just stretching their legs. Now, when they're actually giving birth, they go into farrowing pens, which is a smaller pen. It has a few special places for the piglets to go so the mama doesn't accidentally lay down on them. Uh, you know, it's a truth that the mama will sometimes lay down on them and kill her own <gasps> piglets just because she's so oh, big yes. and they're so little. So you have to set up things to protect them and to keep the mom. She's not intentionally doing it. She's just a, a big animal and there's 15 or 20 of them running around her. How does she keep an eye on every single one of them? It's you just almost have to come right. see it to really understand the, the realities of it. Uh, just for fun. I know this isn't in, in the plans, but what would the difference make of moving the pigs outside? Like, is that a major improvement in their quality of life? Or is that just about getting more space and a little more oxygen? It doesn't change oxygen. It, it would change space. It, it, it changes our interpretation of their experience. In my mind, it, it only changes our interpretation of their experience because they can't tell us. We watch them mm -hmm. out on grass or in a pasture and we think, wow, that's what I would like. So they must mm. like that more. That's not true. Mm. I would die in a freezing cold blizzard if I had to stand out in it. Animals do it <laughs> all the time. I mean, we can't yeah. truly understand their experience. They can't convey it to us. I mean, I think the signs that really make sense to me, make an actionable truth is if they stop eating if they've got diarrhea mm -hmm. and you can see it if they're if they're just feeling bad there's a mm -hmm. situation there you need to deal with 
And I've seen pigs right. in gestation crates, and they look like they just feel bad. You know, they do. I've seen mm. pigs in, in pasture. They look like they feel great. I think they're great. I've seen pigs in barns and big pens. They look like they feel great. They're not dirty. Like, that's one of the great things about pigs. Cattle just lay down right in their own poop. Pigs won't. They don't do that. They'll, they go and just <clears throat> stay clean. away from it. They are more clean than you may interpret they are. The, that's so the difference is probably temperature. Hot temperatures are hard for pigs. So if you're in kind of a hot climate and you're letting them just grow in the pasture, they're going to grow slower. You're going to have a harder time getting them to the weight you want them to. Those are all just production realities that any farmer and rancher considers because that affects their sustainability from a financial position, right? We talk about sustainability mm -hmm. a lot. I want everybody to think about plugging in the truth that you have to be financially sustainable. Just saying, oh, this is sustainable. It's sequestering carbon. It's happy life for the pigs. If it's not financially sustainable, it doesn't happen. Nobody can continue. Uh, nobody is the wrong word. There are certain billionaires that could continue to do it forever and ever without any concern for finance. But most billionaires don't get to be billionaires without caring about profits. Anyways, that's me on my soapbox a little bit about it. <laughs> I hope it paints a picture. It answers your question about going outside. Why wouldn't we just do that? Yeah, totally. It does. And it makes me think too. It reminds me a, a couple of days ago, I was thinking about my dog, who's a, he's a mini Australian shepherd. And I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we got a bunch of sheep and a plot of land and we just let him fulfill his, you know, what he's bred to be as a shepherd? I wonder if he would be happier doing that. Uh, but my fiance reminded me, well, he's a dog. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. And he has a good life now. So there's no comparing like we humans do of like aspiring to something else. Yeah, he has so. instincts. I have Australian Shepherd, not a mini, but they have instincts. Like if you were to put your dog in a group of chickens, even people, I think if, Start you, go hurting the, them. if yeah. you go to the park and just watch him, there's a chance yeah. he has an instinct to herd the people. And oh, yeah, he herds us all the time. You probably find out he loves to chase frisbees or balls or get energy out because he's high energy. You know, those are fulfilling activities for your dog. It's not exactly what you may picture, but he's he's having fulfillment. He's having exercise. He's having I don't think we should worry so much about did he get to go herd up sheep? which is what God intended him for. I, I just don't worry so much about that. I worry more about, does my dog seem happy? Is he mm -hmm. getting the exercise he needs? I'm also jaded because I have lots of property. I can go ride horses on, let my dogs run. Like we don't even pin them up. They just live outside our house. They roam all over the country. So I'm jaded in the way that I, I don't, completely understand what the truth is for everybody else who may only have a small backyard right. or who may live in an apartment and have to walk their mm -hmm. dog for that dog to get exercise. I never even think about walking my dog. They do their own walking, <laughs> just exploring on them on their own. So there's pieces of it I don't understand because I have not lived that truth. Yeah. Yeah. My experience is 
living in the city in an apartment. We do have a front and backyard, so we're lucky there. But, you know, right after this, I'm going to be taking him for a walk. Yeah. <laughs> and it is really more for me. It's more for the human that, like, it would be nice if he could just roam free <laughs> and I didn't have to schedule my day around him. It's also a value to you, too. <laughs> Now you're getting some exercise. Mm -hmm. You're getting up and moving your body. That's important. That's in my opinion, it's really important for humans to do those things. I think it oh, adds yeah. to our longevity. It adds to our happiness. It adds to our ability to perform our jobs or just better in relationships. So y'all actually help each other. I, I mean, so I eat a pork chop and it gives me nutrition. So I'm, well, you and your dog exercise together. There is no, no trade-off relationship I've ever heard of. Where one person mm. gets all and the other person gives all. We all are mm. trading back and forth. Yeah. And and I think what you mentioned earlier, it's like it's about striving towards that balance, right? And like in commercial farming, it's gone all the way in one direction where it's only serving humans. And now we're kind of trying to rebalance that. I also, I want to avoid the interpretation that I think all that commodity stuff is terrible, has no value, had no use. It's like the most stupid thing ever. That's not true either. I, I disagree with pieces of it, but it's still alive. So it is solving some real problem in the world. Most things that just aren't doing anything good for anybody disappear. So I'm not trying to say I'm holier than them or I, I, everything we do and think is the only way to think. I'm saying what we do and think mm. is important to us. We're passionate about it. It, it pays us. It's sustainable. And, and that's exciting for me. And I think it's going to get bigger. More and more things are going to come into our arena. Mm -hmm. But I, I just don't want to be the person that kind of puts others down. I disagree with pieces of it, but that doesn't mean we can't coexist. It's like the vegetarians and carnivores. We should be able to get along. Mm. Yeah, we exist on the same planet after all. Right. <laughs> Might as well try and get along. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking up the 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 amount of pork that we consume as a country. And uh, I knew it was going to be a lot, but I found the exact numbers are in 2019, it was 67 pounds per capita, which amounts to 22 billion pounds of pork a year, which is a lot, <laughs> right? And I, I think to your point, all those animals, those living creatures are serving this purpose and this demand. And we could talk about, you know, whether that demand is excessive or or not but obviously you as a company as petersons want to grow and keep bringing more of your operation to the standard i i heard you speak on another podcast that in your time here at petersons in the last 20 years you've helped the company grow its revenue by about a thousand percent which is a lot right and so i'm curious what kinds of things you've tried whether it's you know, through brand and storytelling, or whether it's implementing new technologies, what behind the scenes business strategies have really moved the needle that maybe other farms could look to as, as sort of a case study. Awesome. Okay, cool. I've got a lot of input for that. I'm not going to have as much insight from the farming piece of it, but I have a lot of insight from the brand building, consumer relationship product R&D position. Farming, I mean, we've done things to move to Gap One. We've retrofit farms. We've implemented feeding technologies and how to grow plants for feed 
mm. better without GMOs and without the pesticides and those things. So a lot of those things we've figured out. I know much better the pieces that go around our brand and how we really listen closely to consumers and our employees. We were the first company to put out a nationally distributed no sugar bacon, which is probably so far in my career the most impactful thing I've been a part of. It hit the market really well. Humans were starting to realize sugar's kind of a bad piece of the puzzle for a lot of us. Um, sugar's not a bad thing for me to avoid in my diet. I know that. I've spent some time away from sugar, and it's been good time. <laughs> so anyways, we put out this no sugar <laughs> bacon, and people were skeptical. No sugar? Is that going to taste as good? A consumer's going to want that? Because we were highly aligned with Whole30, happened to be a really emerging thought lifestyle around how you reset your diet and find out what really works for you and what doesn't. Anyways, that started going gangbusters. It really did well. It hit the market at a good time. We developed a really tasty, high quality product without sugar. I didn't realize at that moment we had lost our advantage because every buyer all over the country was telling every competitor of ours in every space Peterson's is having a huge amount of success with this item. You should make one because they need the competition to battle our price. Like it's capitalism. That's just how it works. I was not smart enough to realize we had already lost that. So we, we missed our opportunity to, to leverage that in the biggest way possible. We should have and could have put more financial weight behind mm. the brand at that time of that particular product. That's one example, one story of a business. And the way we invented that, I say invented it, or just realized it was good is we were paying attention to consumers. We had people on our team that were eating paleo and, and were looking for no sugar bacon. They couldn't find it. So mm -hmm. the word got up to our R&D team. I'm looking for this and I can't find it, which to me is like mm -hmm. I'm listening for that all the time. You know, Jane, is there something you're looking for that you can't find? That is our opportunity as a company. And that's what company's job is to do, is to solve that problem for people. The other thing we did is getting vertically integrated. At one time in my career, we did not own pig farms. Now we own pig farms. Now we own all the pieces from baby piglet to actually bacon at your door. So through e-com, that little from us to you is a new thing for us, going direct to consumer. We had, for the most time, been selling to distributors or grocery stores. We didn't actually have the relationship with the end consumer. Now we can tie that picture all the way from very first steps to somebody enjoying that for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. I think bacon, sausage, probably good for all those occasions. What would have been some of the recent passionate conversations about what consumers want. Well, it's getting pretty passionate over is the no sugar wave hit its peak? Have we mm. now done all the problem solving in that arena that we can? I kind of think so. Other people kind of don't think so. We have a lot of debate right now over pricing, you know, really heated, hot mm. topic in this inflationary economy. How are we going to price our products? How are we going to profit, stay in business? Can we survive with 
some down years and grow our market actually by taking some losses. There's a lot of people in the company that aren't fans of that at all. I might be one of them. You know, I'm like, we can't compete and do the things we need to do if we don't have some profit to invest back into the things that we know are important. So, you mm -hmm. know, those are a couple of the hot topics. Um, here's the business strategy that will play well for anybody and everybody, you included. Get good people. Get good people that align with you and with your company. And you don't always know that day one, right? So as soon as they come be a part of the team, you can figure those things out pretty quick. The good people within your team who are passionate, who will challenge, who aren't afraid to stand on their beliefs for whatever piece of the puzzle they might be playing. We have to have a great maintenance supervisor that keeps this plant up and running. We have to have a great VP of fresh pork that is totally focused on that piece of our business. We have to have a great marketing group. And I'm arguing these days, marketing and sales is the same thing. They have to be a cohesive team. You have to have that department that's paying attention to the financial pieces. And those, that group has to get together and be respectful, vulnerable, passionate, all of those things to really grow your company by a thousand percent like we've done. I mean, we just flat could not do it without the people. Cody, the president of the company, he and I went to kindergarten together. We know each other as well as two people can know each other, really. That's been a really good balance for us. I'm kind of the guy that likes to talk and do these kind of things. He's more of the guy that wants to think about how does this financially make sense? And it's just lucky mm. we worked, but that's worked really good. And then just, we kind of naturally put people on the team similar. My wife plays a role in the company. His wife plays a role in the company. Mm. They've told us, I really like working with this person in my last job. So we went and hired that person. So we just kind of add people already vetted, basically is what I'm saying. They're hard worker, smart, good people. Yeah. It's almost like a family business. We've known each totally other that is. long. I don't know yeah. what the other definition <laughs> would be. Love it. Um, as we come to a close, I would love to ask you about your, your thoughts on the future. What do you think are going to be the biggest changes to the animal husbandry space in the next, say, 10, 20 years or so? Whether it's ways that technology comes into play or, you know, maybe more farms and more companies are going the humanely raised way. What are your thoughts there? Well, I'm already making this bet. I'm betting that blockchain plays a huge role within animal agriculture and how transparency becomes second nature. You're going to have in the next 20 years, probably much quicker, the ability to know exactly where your food comes from, what part of the world, what part of the state, what part of the country, who the farmer was, all of that. And I think every big company is going to be able to do that too. I think that technology is going to find that problem and fix it. So there is no guessing or wondering. You can specifically know where it came from. And I think that's great. I think it's it's also great for food safety. You know, now you know if there was a problem in this part of the country with some thing, we, you know, COVID-19, I don't know, pick whatever thing it might be. Oh, cool. Now we know where every bit of that food is and everybody else hmm. is informed of it. It's just so much more transparent, easy access information. 
There's someone I should connect oh. you to on that blockchain point. We we actually had an entrepreneur on the show who's building a blockchain platform for supply chain tracing. Yeah. So that might come to life very soon. Uh, I, I know it is. I'm making those bets. Our company is investing in those technologies. And, and when I say investing, it means I'm spending my time thinking about it. That's an investment. Like every mm. person in the company mm. spends their time thinking on something. Well, that's an investment the company's making in that arena. The Internet of Things, Internet 3.0, those things are, are going to totally change the landscape. I was just at a conference. They said a word that just caught my ear because my youngest daughter plays this game called Roblox. And if you're not familiar with it, you're just like me. I'm not familiar with it, but I know I've heard them, <laughs> the girls talking about Roblox. So they said it in this conference. Chipotle had made a store in Roblox where somebody would go in Roblox, buy the burrito, and then go to the physical store and pick it up. That's kind of softly going the direction I think we end up over time. You have so much knowledge and so much energy, and I'm so grateful you got to spend this hour with us. I, I really appreciate the time. I hope we're friends now. I want to be your friend. I think you're yes. a valuable asset yes. to my network. Everybody, yeah. you should go listen to The Cowboy Perspective, which is a podcast that's really more from my, where I live and just tells the story of cowboys and cowgirls in my life that have made me successful, I, I think. And just listen to the Cody episode. It, it goes into detail about how he went from hired to be the marketing manager, actually took the job as the QA manager, promoted to president in a year's time. That is a really amazing story when you slow down and think about it. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much again, Neil. I'm sure listeners would love to tune into your show um, and learn more about you. Uh, where's the best way to stay in touch with you and find you on the internet? You can go find me on LinkedIn, you know, search Neil Dudley on LinkedIn. Look up the Cowboy Perspective on Instagram. Peterson's Farms on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, our website, petersonsfarms.com. You're awesome. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body and I'll talk to you next time.